Well, it's good to see you here at the start of a new uh, series that we're doing together. And um, I've called it Jesus the Cell Leader. Uh, but really what I mean by that is we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus and how he discipled his 12. And uh, this, is, this is an important subject for us because very often people can, when they read the Gospels, it can appear that Jesus is going around, going to random villages, just preaching the gospel, healing, what, healing whatever sickness he's, he, he finds, casting out demons, staying here. And you can read the gospels as if there seems to be no major scheme or plan, village to village, town to town. Uh, but actually, when we take some time, and that's what we're going to do, in the coming couple of months, we're going to study Jesus's methods, Jesus's tactics, because everything that Jesus did uh, was not random, but everything was according to a divine plan. He waited 30 years to minister, and when he ministered for those three years, nothing was done by accident. Nothing just happened. He had intentions. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew how he wanted to spend his time. Everything was thought through. And so when we look at Jesus and look at, at him and his model of ministry and the things that were important to him, you know, you can often tell what's important to somebody by how much time they give to it, correct? You can often tell how important somebody is to somebody else by the amount of time that they give to that person. So when you look at how somebody spends their time and how much time they spend on this, that, and the other, that will tell you a lot about that person, a lot about their priorities. And today, when we think about the church and the great need in Europe for a revival, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and a grand mobilization of every believer to win and make disciples, when we look, look at that, and you look at the great need of Britain today and the great need of, of Europe and the tiny, tiny churches that we are and the minimal effect that we are having on society. And you would say, well, if Jesus was here today, what would he do? How would he deal with this huge mountain of souls that need to be saved in Europe and, and the world? How would he go about it? Would he quickly get himself a television station and get on the TV station? Would he hire um, Wembley Stadium? Is that what he would do? Is that where he would put all his energy? And would he use his signs and his wonders and his great miracles and his preaching? And would he go from stadium to stadium, nation to nation, TV station to TV station? And if all he had were three years to do that, to bring Europe uh, and the world to Christ, is that what he'd do, the mammoth meetings? Well, when we go back to the New Testament, we see exactly the methods and the focus that Jesus would have. And uh, that's why we're doing it, because he would do exactly the same thing today as he did then. Yes, he would make use of, of modern technology, but his strategies and his scheme and his tactics and his methods would be exactly the same. And, and I want to put it to you that, as we'll see, just as he put so much emphasis on his cell group. His, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no apologies for saying cell group. I know they didn't call them cell groups in those days. They didn't call them home groups. I know, I know they didn't do that, but I'm going to do it because he had 12 men in a small group and that's what he led. And so we're a cell church, so I make no apologies of, of using a, a modern word for a past, a past scenario. His cell group, his cell of 12. If he was here today, he would do exactly the same as he did. Yes, he would have the larger meetings and the big crowds, as we'll see, but his main strategy would be on a cell group of mentoring people. That's what his main method was then. That's what his main method was now. And that's very, very different to uh, the mentality of the Western church in many areas, not all, but many, where the idea is the bigger the crowd, the better where the idea is, is if you want success, you've got to get as many, many people together as possible. You've got to focus on the crowds alone. And, you and if you're a great, great reacher of men's souls, you don't have time for a cell group. 
You don't have time to spend quality time over a period of three years with, with a small group of people. Come on, you've got to be out there. You've got to be up there in, in, on the pulpit with the thousands reaping the harvest. That's what, you, that's what many people think. I think naturally that's what we might think as well. But, but Jesus reached the multitudes, but that was by no means his major focus of his ministry, as we'll see. And so a, a, a study of Christ's strategy, Jesus did want to reach the multitudes. But he didn't just want to reach the multitudes. He wanted to disciple the multitudes. That's very, very different to just wanting to reach the multitudes with a gospel message, with a healing message. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make sure everybody's heard the gospel once. He didn't say that. Go into all the world and get the message out. And that's all that matters. Make sure the world has heard the message and then forget it. No, his, his, his great mandate, his great commission was go into all the world making disciples of all nations. I mean, Jesus is wanting whole nations disciples. And that's an incredible thing for Jesus to say. And this, of course, is an introductory session really today. But that's an incredible thing for Jesus to say. Go and disciple nations. Well, how shall we disciple nations? And what will discipled nations look like? Well, we turn to Jesus and we see how did he disciple his disciples. And it was to those disciples that he was giving this mandate. The apostles. What does the word apostle mean? Can anyone tell me? Sent ones. Sent. So the twelve were going to be sent to not just preach the gospel, but to make disciples of the whole world. So um, this, was, this was his master plan. This is what he intended to do. What was his method of reaching the world and discipling the world? Men and women would become his method of reaching the world. His objective was clear right from the beginning. He was not just the saviour of the house of Israel... He was the saviour of all nations. He was the saviour of the world. And as I said, he had a plan. He had a schedule. There was a moment in time that he was heading towards the cross. And the cross took place on exactly, right on schedule, right on plan. The cross wasn't too early and it wasn't too late. Do you remember? There were times you hear Jesus say, especially in John's gospel, he says, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. Um, every so often, somebody would say, and he said, my hour's not yet come. What does he mean? He says, it's not yet time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how was he glorified? He was glorified by being shamed on the cross. Isn't that incredible? The great shame of Jesus was his great glory. So he says, it's not time yet. It's not scheduled yet. My hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. And then when it comes to that final few hours, he says, my hour has come. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he was on a tight schedule. If I was to tell you that you've got three years left and you're going to die, you've got three years left on this earth, three years as a Christian, and I guarantee after three years you're gone, how would you spend those three years? Would you just let the months slide, another month go by, another month go by, another month go by? Or would you say, I've got three years left on this earth. Who am I going to spend time with? You know, if you've got three years, you're going to say, do you know what? I want to spend more time with those that are close to me. I've got friends in other countries. I've got to make sure I see them over. It's amazing how a short time can concentrate the mind, can make you think about who is important, how to spend your time. If you only had three years left, I am sure that you would, you would get out the big calendars and you would say, what am I going to do with this week? And if a week went by, which you just cruised through with nothing, I'm sure you'd go, that's a whole week gone. I've only got three years, a whole week wasted. I'm saying this because I want us, when we go to the Gospels in these days and read about Jesus' life, I want us to approach it from a fresh perspective when you read the Gospels. Because some of us, we've been brought up reading the Gospels, and what can happen is we become familiar with the Gospels, familiar with the stories. But like I said, those three years, everything that Jesus did was 
pre-planned, pre-programmed by his father. In John chapter 5.19, John 5.19, you hear these words. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever the father does, the son also does in like manner. So he wasn't just wandering around, healing the sick and preaching the gospel and casting out devils and just having a great time. Who knows? Make the most of it until the end comes. No, every day Jesus had his schedule. You know, if you looked, if he had one of those iPads or iPhones or one of those computer diaries, you know, and, and they say, oh, what have I got on my schedule today? Nine o'clock breakfast meeting, you know, 11 o'clock counseling. Every moment of Jesus' schedule, there would be something penned in. There would be something. It wasn't just a random act. And I'll be showing you that if you, if you were to use a color code, you know sometimes you use color codes, don't you, for diaries and things? And um, I've got a, a big diary up on my wall looking at the year, and we have color codes, little little red lines for this, little blue lines for that, and color codes. And so when you look at something like that, you can begin to see how, how you're spending your time. Now, if Jesus had a color, color code for cell, time with my disciples, you would find that the vast majority of Jesus' time, 70, maybe 80%, I'm just making that 80%, maybe even more, would be spent time with his disciples. You notice that The nearer Jesus gets to his death, the more time he spends with his cell and the less time he spends with the multitudes. Why? Because when you're coming to the point of your death, then things get serious. You don't have time for secondary things. You say, I'm going to die in a few weeks or a few months. I need to do, I've got to just do the absolute most important things. And what was the most important things? For Jesus, it was to be with those men that he had called and chosen. So this was his plan, but this was also the Father's plan. I said that men were his method. He was going to, and when I mean men, we can expand that to women as well, but we're focusing on the 12 apostles that were men. Humans were his method. And so instead of just going out and reaping massive harvests, he actually put his strategy and his hopes, and his, uh, his, his, and basically, he put his whole eggs in one basket, and it was the basket had 12 eggs in. He put it into his 12 disciples. It was them or nothing. It was everything that he had and could have, he put into his 12 disciples, and he wasn't concerned so much with programs, conferences, gatherings to reach the multitudes, but he was concerned with forming those people whom the multitudes would follow. So it's not just about reaching the multitudes. You can reach the multitudes, and praise God for that. I'm not denigrating that. We don't want to be a secret society. But it's not just about reaching the multitudes. The question is, who are the multitudes going to follow? And we'll see a passage that Jesus was greatly distressed when he saw the multitudes. He said they're like sheep, scattered sheep, without shepherds, pray for laborers to enter the harvest. He had gathered the the multitudes, but they had no one to follow. You see, yes, they did. They had Jesus to follow. Well, they could only hear his seminars. They could only hear his his great things. Most of them could never have a one-to-one. Most of them could not be discipled like the twelve were being discipled. And um, we see this straight away in Jesus' ministry. As soon as he begins, he begins to gather these men that he is going to have a primary focus. His primary ministry on the earth was to the twelve. That, that is incredible to think about. And it's going to take us two months to sink in. And we're going to look each week at different aspects of how Jesus mentored and ministered to these 12. Um, And a lot of what I'm going to say, the vast majority of what I'm going to say, and I don't apologize for it, comes from this book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert E. Coleman. And we've got copies of these if you want out in, I think they're 6.99 
out in the foyer. You can get them off Amazon as well. And it's, it's this book that focuses on how Jesus focuses on his wealth. And it's had a tremendous effect on people's lives. I've read this book three to four times in the last year because it's just, it's just exactly where it's at. I've been giving this book to key cell leaders during that time. And, uh, and the feedback I've been getting back from how this has helped them and encouraged them that what they're doing is the prime way that Jesus wants us to do it. It's so affirming, it's so encouraging. And so with all that feedback, with the impact it's having on my life and other people that have read it to say, hey, let's get back and do what Jesus did. Let, let, let's get rid of all the periphery that looks so important and let's get back and look at the method and model of Jesus. I thought we should do a series on this. We should bring it to a, 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 a wider group of people. So right from the beginning, I mean, let's have a look in John chapter 1, 35. As soon as Jesus started his ministry, he was looking for his cell members, his primary cell members. Right from the beginning, that was on his heart. He wasn't just going to the synagogues preaching, he did that. He wasn't just healing, he did that. But he was looking and seeking and praying for those 12 that would be his mentoring leadership cell that he would bring to prepare to get the mission done. So John chapter 1, verse 35. Straight away, John the Baptist has identified Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus has been baptized and the Holy Spirit has come upon his life. So, and, and John says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which when translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which translated a stone. The following day... Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. And that could go on, but can you see, straight away, straight away, John Gospel shows us, as soon as Jesus has been baptised with the anointing, he's launching his ministry, the very next day, he is gathering members of his cell group. What an incredible priority. If we go back to Matthew chapter 3, I mean, if someone was a, if I can use the word, a minister or a pastor, and they were put in a new church, uh, what would the first thing they would do? Well, they might say, well, let's see how many people we have at the services. Let me prepare my services. Oh, maybe we've got a midweek Bible study or a midweek prayer study, or uh, what are our programs for feeding the hungry? And, and uh, if, But... But perhaps that, per, that pastor or that leader, that new leader, the first thing that should be on his heart was, where are those disciples? Where's my core group? I need to pray and seek them. The core group. That's the most important thing. I have to do this, that, and the other. But Lord, bring me my, if I can use the phrase, 12. It didn't have to be 12, but you know what I'm talking about there. And so Matthew chapter 3. And again, Matthew chapter 3, we have the baptism, of course, and John's testimony. And then in chapter 3, 17, we have the voice coming from heaven saying, This is my beloved, my, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then we have Jesus' temptation. You can see it there in Matthew chapter 4. He's tempted and tested by the devil. And then verse 17 of, of chapter 4, 17. 
We're seeing this in context. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Praise the Lord. He's having preaching campaigns. He's going to synagogues. Is that right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's the message. But look straight alongside it in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, Jesus, it wasn't just that Jesus was a fisher of man and what a great fisher of men he was. He casted out nets and thousands came into the kingdom. But that wasn't his focus. That wasn't his main focus. He did it. He modeled it. It was, I'm going to make you the fishers of men. You're my plan. You're where I'm going to pour my life into. I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, uh, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing the kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people, and he was famous, and etc., and casting out demons. To the 25, great multitudes followed him. But can you notice, I think many people just go straight to the multitudes. Oh, look at Jesus. As soon as he got anointed, he healed the sick. He, 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 multitudes, the ministry of multitudes had taken place. And they would forget that before that is mentioned, he was already, his priority was not to make the multitude, reach the multitudes and then after that find a cell. Oh, I'll grow myself a big church and then maybe we'll do home groups and cell groups. No, the first thing that he was doing, he was looking for individuals. He was going to minister to multitudes, but he was focusing on individuals. Men were his method. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, I mentioned this a bit earlier. Matthew chapter 9, 35, again, the ministry to the multitudes. Then Jesus went all about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, <coughs> healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was happy because the work was being done and it was all gone, everybody was going to get saved. Nothing else was needed because he had thousands and thousands of people coming to his church and they had to buy a bigger building and have multi-campuses and they filled Wembley Arena for, for yearly conferences and they couldn't fit them in so they had to go to stadiums and Jesus was really happy because this was the plan of the Father. No. But when he saw the multitudes, he had that. He was moved with compassion. He wasn't moved with victorious joy. Look at this, we're winning. He was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were weary and scattered. A scattered gathering. You know, you can have a scattered gathering. You can have a gathering of people. <clears throat> you can gather a people, but the question is, they can be, they can be all over the place. That doesn't mean that they're one. That doesn't mean that they're being led. Just because you can, uh, what's the word, um, uh, attract a crowd does not mean that that crowd that you've attracted is being led. And Jesus said, I've attracted a crowd, but I'm just so moved with pity and compassion because they're like sheep having no shepherd. And you think, well, wait, they did have a shepherd. Jesus said, I am the shepherd. No, a shepherd has to be intimately involved in his sheep. Uh, you can only be a shepherd of a certain amount of sheep, especially in the ancient Near East. You can only properly shepherd a certain amount of sheep because you have to know them by, if I can use the phrase, name. You, a shepherd, Jesus says this time and time again, an ancient Near East shepherd knows his sheep. He can tell you which is which. He can tell you their characters. And so Jesus is concerned is he's reaching the multitudes, but that's not the main purpose. That's very secondary and that's why he's unhappy because they're not being discipled. They're not being discipled. He's discipling his men, but these are not being discipled like his men are being discipled. And he says to his disciples, in verse 37, he's saying, look, and they're going, 
Yes, we've made it in the ministry. Jesus, you're getting more crowds than John the Baptist. This is it. And Jesus is saying, this is not it. This is not it. No, we need to pray. Look, the harvest is plentiful. But where are the laborers? And what do you mean by laborers? We mean the shepherds, the pastors, the cell leaders. Therefore, let's pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's the Holy Spirit. Not for the harvest. We do pray for the harvest. But not for the harvest. That we have laborers into the harvest that they can gather and disciple like Jesus was doing. And then, if you continue to read, you go straight into chapter 10. Remember, there aren't chapters in the New Testament. These are just what the early church put in to help us read it. Then he says, and when he had called his 12 disciples. So you see these great multitudes that Jesus is attracting by the power of God and the preaching of God and the anointing. But he's saying, come on, I need my 12. Why? Because we need laborers. They don't have shepherds. They're scattered, weary. They're not being mentored. And we need to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. Hello, 12. You're the, you're the, you're the first answer to that prayer. You're the first answer. Here, I'm going to give you some of what I've got. I'm going to give you power and authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to, you're going to heal the, the, the kinds of diseases. And then they're named. They're named. The names of his 12 are there. Simon and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew and James and Alphaeus and Lebius, whose sermon was Thaddeus and Simon and Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And he says, go heal the sick. Go preach the gospel. But he was giving them an anointing not just to reach the multitudes. He was teaching them to the disciple the multitudes. And that was his, his plan. Now, I'm going to come to this later on in the sermon today about praying. Praying. But it's interesting who Jesus called. And he had called his twelve by the end of the first year of his ministry. He'd got his 12, he called. He had other levels of disciples, of course. We, he, you know, there was time when he sent 70 out. And he seemed to have close people. There were certain godly ladies that funded his ministry that seemed to be... There were others that he knew, Mary Magdalene and things like that. People that he knew. So, so he, had a, he wasn't just the 12, but they, they were very special to him. He had the 70, and, and uh, when he died, there was... There was not just the disciples, there was a few more that, that knew him, that, that stayed, stayed with the faith. But even in his 12, he also had his three, didn't he? Do you remember the inner core? Can you name them? That's right. Peter, James, and John. Now, they were his closest associates. So he had his 12. And 12 is just about the perfect number for that type of mentoring if he had any more than that, if he had 15, it would be very hard to mentor those people individually and as a group and to form them. And so 12 is the perfect number, really, for, for that type of mentoring, not just because the New Testament says so, but psychologists and sociologists have spoken about the number of 12 and, and what you can do with 12 people in a teaching, mentoring, uh, educational type of way that you can't do. But he also had his three... And those three were very close to him. And those three, it's not just about those three getting special attention, but actually Jesus expected more from them. Those three were meant to really be the prime ministers to Jesus. I mean, the, the, the main ministers to him. That's why often when he has to do something, he'll call them to him. Not just so they see him on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, it, when Jesus was in great need of support, it was Peter, James, and John that he was saying, where are you, Peter, James, the disciples, but Peter, James, John, if ever I need your support right now, it's now. And so we can see the, and, and we can see the inner workings. It's interesting to go through the Gospels and see how Jesus treated Peter, James, and John and his expectations of them were very high because they were his close associates. Peter, 
was given a great mandate, James. And, and, and we, know, we, know, uh, we know what John was like. John was the beloved disciple, wasn't he? And, and so there was, there, was, there was great closeness there, but there was also great things to be expected um, um, from them. But these men that he called, interesting. He didn't call the great theologians of the day. And there were many great theologians of the day. Many great rabbis, many great schools, Hillel and Shammai. And, but he didn't go to Hillel or Shammai or Gamaliel, Paul's, uh, who was Paul's rabbi before Paul got saved. He didn't go to the great men. He could have, I suppose, but he didn't choose to. He didn't go to Gamaliel, who seemed to be quite open to Jesus' ministry. He didn't go to him and say, hey, you're, you're the best teachers. Come and join me. We, we can really get a power ministry going together. If you join me, the greatest minds, the greatest educators, the greatest ministers of Israel today, the most famous, will come together, we'll have a conference. I'll be the main speaker, of course, but you guys can do seminars and everything like that. Just say, see how we will take Israel. He didn't do that. He didn't call priests. He didn't call those that were learned. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Acts 4, they say... These men are not learned. How can they speak like this? They haven't been to the right ministry schools or to the, to the Bible schools. Most of them were Galileans. The majority of them were Galileans. That means that they were northerners. They, they, they weren't from the posh south or the educated south or the affluent south. They were northerners. It, it would be a bit like today, like Jesus coming down to minister in London, and you say, well, where, where was he born and bred? Barnsley. It would be like Jesus of Barnsley. Jesus of Barnsley. And he's coming down with his mates. They're working the factories and carpentry shops and, and you know, fi not fish there's no fishing in Barnsley, but you know what I'm saying? And it's like, hello, I'm Jesus. Hello, all right. Now then, I'm Peter, aye, from, from Barnsley. And... Um, if, if, I mean, I'm making a little bit of a joke. I'm from the north. But if that was happening, there'd be a lot of people thinking, who the heck are these? Barnsley? What good ever came from Barnsley? Do you know what I'm saying? It's exactly, you see, we forget, because Nazareth seems like, oh, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, what a wonderful place it must be, you know. It must have been like the London or the Paris of the time. No, no, it was the Barnsley of the time. And so he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the great London, the great Paris, the great seminaries. He didn't go to the great wealthy people, although they weren't all poor. I mean, I mean the fishermen had a fleet of, 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 um, of fishing vessels and had servants that they could hand over the family business to. So they weren't, they weren't all poor, but they, were, they weren't special, learned. Um, and we look at their... Their temperament, they, they weren't saints. You know, you go to somewhere like St. Peter's Square and you can see models, or not models, statues of so-called, the so-called statues of the apostles and, oh, they look so grand, poised. And you see the great Renaissance-type paintings of the apostles. They got halos on their heads and they, they, they look almost angelic, superhuman. Huh. Well, they certainly weren't like that when Jesus met them, I mean, they, they, they were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, very slow to learn. Jesus said, come on, come on, keep up, come on. Well, what did you mean? Oh, come on. I've just told you what I meant. We didn't understand. And Jesus like, you are so slow. I mean, you hear Jesus saying these things. I'm just trying to, you know, demystify it all. He's like, come on, you're slow, you're dull. Listen to what I'm saying. Uh, they argue with one another. They all wanted the top job. They were thinking, you know, when, when the old man, Jesus, not old man, but when he goes, who's going to take his place? Oh, well, that would be me. You don't be so, I think it's going to be me. And, and then the two of them, you know, the two brothers, say, well, actually, uh, we're, we're his cousins, so we're going to go to our mum, who knows his mum, and our mum is going to speak to his mum, and speak to him and get us a good place in the kingdom. Do you remember all that? I mean, what a group to, what a group to choose. It's not the ones that you would choose. If, 
If you were a cell leader and these types of people were said, here you are, we've got 12 people for you, you'd quit within a week. You'd say, I'm not doing this. There's no, there's no hope. But you see, the one thing about these men is, is, is one thing we can say about them, is uh, they were hungry. They, they were honest, hungry for God. They, they didn't want religion as usual. I mean, I don't need to go back into the passages, but remember when we were reading in John? We saw some of the first, John's gospel, some of the first disciples. They were already following John. They were already saying something's going to happen. And if you read John chapter 1 right through, and you see the disciples that he's calling again and again, saying, I think we've found him. I think we've found him. I think we've found the one that's going to restore our fortunes. I think we've found the Messiah. They, they, They kept saying that. So, so these weren't like, they, they didn't, they were searching for God. They were searching for something that was authentic. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a verse you should never forget because it's easy to, rem- to remember. John 6, verse 66, 666. John 6, verse 66 shows you the type of um, men that they were. And it's interesting in this introductory session on Jesus and his, Jesus the cell leader is that in John 6, 66, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered them and said, did I not choose you, the twelve? He mentions that one's a devil, but did I not choose you, the twelve? What a beautiful moment. And so at that point in John's Gospel, that was, that was the height of Jesus' multitudes ministry. I mean, they were, gonna, they were going to uh, crown him king. I mean, there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And what did he do? He spoke words that, that he spoke words that they couldn't take. You see, they weren't ready to follow him. He says, you came to me, not because of the sign, but because of the bread. In other words, I gave you bread, but you didn't see that the bread pointed to discipleship and following me. So you came for what you could get. But now when I'm giving you words, when I was telling you, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's offending you. And you're thinking, oh, I don't like that. No, I like the other sermon on the bread. I like it when he does the miracles. Why is he speaking these words? Actually, I find that quite offensive. We're not cannibals. This is, this, yeah, I don't like this. I'm not, I, you know, I've gone off him. He's, gone, he's going a bit weird, a bit mad, a bit strange. He's, 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 he's obviously going to his head. I'm not going to, and so, when, it start, when Jesus started to look a bit strange, a bit weird, started saying things which were a bit offensive, that were, were not popular, the popular people, fickle as they are, began to withdraw. Never trust the crowds. Never trust the crowds. They're here one day, gone the next. I mean, you know, it's like if your football team is doing really well, whatever they are, uh, your stands will be full. But, I mean, I remember... I'm a Millwall supporter, and a year or so ago, I took my son, I'm a, he, he's the main Millwall supporter, and I joined with him, and we went, to, we went to see Millwall in the semi-finals at Wembley, and there was uh, 45,000 Millwall fans. We thought, we don't see these down the den when we go down the den. We're lucky if we get eight or nine. And uh, why? They're there because of success. But when, when we were nearly going down this season... A lot of them were nowhere to be seen. And yet yesterday, on the last day when we secured staying in championship, it was a packed house. And I just use that as an example because I've been thinking about it. But, um, but that's the same with pop stars, isn't it? And politicians. And every type of crowd. And, and you know, out there, the pop stars, they're, they're abs- do anything to keep that crowd. Keep that crowd buzzing. Don't lose your crowd. Don't lose it. Keep tweeting. Keep doing. Keep. And then if you tweet the wrong thing, what happens to the crowds? <laughs> if you're a politician and you do something unpopular, what happens to the crowds? They'll find somebody else. 
So Jesus knew what was in the crowds. And the crowds are not enough. What he wanted was discipled crowds. And so they all went. They dismissed. They weren't with him because of who he was. They weren't followers. They were consumers. And a consumer always consumes according to their own... um, What? What? (laughs) Desire, their own, yeah, on their own um, uh, preferences. And and so it's like, you know, it's like if you go in and you you buy a loaf of bread and then someone says, try this one and it's better, you'll you'll throw the other bread away even if you've been buying it for the last 10 years. You know what I'm saying? So it's consumer-based. But discipleship is not consumer-based. It's conviction-based. And so you see in this beautiful passage that, all right, they were a jolly mess, this group of men. I mean, you know, if you put this, if you, if you were a senior minister of a church and they said, we'd like you to come in and see your team. We've got a team of ministers and your core team. We'd like to introduce you to them. Here's your 12. And it was these young men. You'd walk straight out the door. You'd say, forget it. I can't work with those people. They're immature. They're, they're, they fight amongst themselves. They're... They, they, they can't understand a word I'm saying. They don't know what I'm talking about. They try and change my vision. I say I'm going to the cross and they rebuke me. And Peter says, you know, you're not going to die on the cross. You know, so th- this, is, this, is where, this is where we're going in this um, series. He didn't neglect the masses, but he didn't rely on them for the future. And, um, and think about that. When, when Jesus died, he didn't leave a very big church, did he? He didn't leave a very big church. And even with the resurrection of it, it was only a few hundred. And how many were at the prayer meeting? That tailed off, didn't it? It's like, I'm, I, the Holy Spirit's going to be sent on the day of Pentecost. Tarry until you receive power from high. And everyone's going, whoa, did you just see that with those resurrected? Jesus, that's amazing. You're going to be at the prayer meeting tomorrow. Sure am. That was Jesus. Did you see him? That was Jesus. just appeared and spoke to us. 500 at one time. That is amazing. Oh, praise God. This is great. You're going to be at the prayer meeting. Tomorrow. I'll be there. And they're there at the prayer meeting tomorrow night. You're going to be at the prayer meeting tomorrow night and the next night. Yeah, I'll be there. And after a week, it was like, <sighs> I wish Jesus would appear to us again. That was really fantastic. I mean, that was, a, that was what I call church. And Jesus appeared to us. It was, oh, the goosebumps. Just praying, waiting and praying and seeking. And <sighs> It's getting a bit boring, actually. How long is this going to go on for? I think week by week, Attendance at the prayer meeting dropped. After all, not even the Holy Spirit was ministering in power there, was it? I mean, and it dropped. And then how many were there on on the day of Pentecost? No, not that got saved. How many were at the prayer meeting? 120. Think about that. Pentecost's about to happen. All those thousands and thousands of people that Jesus ministered to. The crowds filling all the arenas, speaking from the hills, the, host, the crowds as he entered Jerusalem. And what's left? 120. What a time. All that work, all that ministry for a church of 120. And that's meant to be Jesus, son of God. Well, like you said, it didn't last for very long because when the Holy Spirit fell, 3,000 in one day. But then they didn't just say 3,000 praise the Lord. What did they do? They began to meet in their houses, daily in the temple for the big meetings. But you see the early church of Acts, they were in houses. They were continuing. They were attempting, the disciples were doing exactly what Jesus said. They were attempting to disciple the crowds. Otherwise, they'd just say, we'll meet in the temple every day for the big ones. No, they were going around in the houses. They 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 were trying to model what Jesus had taught them. And I want to leave you with this today. might pick it up next week. Because what, what we're going to do is we're going to start going through, um, week by week, the different aspects of how Jesus mentored these men. Um, and we're going to look at such things as his selection. We've been looking at that a bit today. How association, how he kept them close. Uh, consecration, how they were sanctified, ready for a work. Impartation, demonstration, delegation, supervision, and reproduction. We're going to look at these themes about how Jesus taught and ministered these themes because these are the very things that we need in our lives. 
very things that we need in ourselves and very things we need in our churches. But let me leave you with John chapter 17, just to leave you with it. This is that great prayer that Jesus is praying. But when you read John chapter 17, you realize that the focus of this prayer is really on his 12 disciples. It's, it's, you know, he's just about to go to the cross and he's praying, but he's not praying for everybody. He's only praying for some. Who is he praying for? He's praying for his disciples, his 12, and then he's also praying for those in the future whom the disciples would disciple. So he's speaking to the Father. Let me just give you a few verses here. You can read it in your own time. Um, but look, look at the importance of his cell group here. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me, speaking about the cross, together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you had given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that, that all things which you have given to me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you've given to me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I have come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. This is his cell prayer. He's praying for his 12. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my twelve. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given to me, that we may be one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I kept. None of them is lost, that's the good shepherd, except the son of perdition, Judas, which scripture might be fulfilled. So you can tell, he's speaking about, his, he's praying about his twelve, his cell. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your world and the world's hated them. I don't pray you take them out of the world but you keep them from the evil. Sanctify them and etc, etc. But verse 20, I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. The generations of believers. And we, we, we can, we can go, go through that. Isn't that amazing? Jesus prayed and said, God, give me. Give me, not just any disciples, give me disciples that you personally give to me. My, uh, if you were to say, is there one prayer, I pray daily, but if you were to say, is there any prayer you, that you pray above all others? Yes, yes, for the last year or so, the prayer I pray above all others is that God will bring to us at Kensington Temple the sons and daughters of the latter house. I say, every day I pray. It's, and I believe it's, the, I pray for my family and all that. But for me, the, the prayer that means most to me, whether that's right or wrong, is this. Lord, manifest. Bring from the four corners of the world and manifest even those that are with. Manifest the sons and daughters of the latter house of Kensington Temple. Because the prophecy is, that the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former, the former days being the revival days of George Jeffreys. So, and I also realize that the future is dependent on the people. Jesus put all his hope for the future evangelizing the world on 12 men. All of the hope on them. If, if, they, if they hadn't carried and, and, and done it, none of this would have happened. And so the most important thing you say, well, if I'm a cell leader, I can't choose who I get. Don't worry about that. We look after whichever sheep we get. I'm talking about those that we're going to make into leaders. That's what I'm talking about. So I'm saying that we should be praying as cell leaders, Lord, thank you for all the sheep, but I'm also asking you to send me the disciples that you want me to input and release to their destiny so that when I'm gone, those that I have discipled will multiply what I've done. I pray for them. Many of the people that I believe in that prayer that I'm praying for, I don't even believe are saved yet. They're not saved yet. I'm saying, Lord, manifest them. They're out there sinning, but you know what? God's going to bring them into this house. And they're not just going to get saved and sit on a pew. They're going to become pillars. They're, they're gonna, there's there's going to be... And, and I also pray some people are already in the house, but they've not yet manifest that sonship 
You know what I'm saying? That daughtership. They're not yet, they're there, but they've yet to rise into carrying what God wants them to carry in the house. So I'm praying for people that are here. I'm praying, not praying for everybody. I'm not, I'm, in that prayer, I'm not praying for everybody that turns up at the 11 o'clock service. I'm not praying for every single person and saying, Lord, they're all sons. I'm not praying that. I'm saying in there somewhere, out there in the world somewhere, are the, the, the major disciple leaders that are coming to the ministry. Because you can't, you, you can't do anything without a team. If you have a bad team around you, you're finished. You can't do it. But if you have a good team around you or a team that you've discipled to the right level, you can do anything. And thank God for the people that here, we have sons and daughters manifest in different parts. You hear what I'm saying? Can you hear my heart? I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying you lot go away because you're, <laughs> you're not the sons and daughters. I'm saying that, that, we, that we need to pray like Jesus prayed. He was up all night praying before he got his 12. It wasn't just everybody. There were many disciples he had. But he was saying, you've got to give me the right ones, Lord, for the leadership role. You've got to get, I don't want to waste time on people that aren't going to carry what's good. Can you imagine if Jesus chose the wrong 12? Can you imagine if they weren't father given? If the Holy Spirit wasn't on it? Can you imagine if they were just random 12? Or he chose those that looked to be something important and he brought them to them. And he spent his life pouring his life into people that had no intention of seeking God or carrying out the vision. Can you imagine that? It would have been a total disaster and a waste of time. So we're, and, and the beautiful thing is you never know where they're going to come from. We've just seen, you know, it's a bit like Samuel the prophet and he goes to Jesse and says, okay, have you got any sons? Because one of them's king. Yeah, here he is. Oh, surely this is the new king. The Lord says, no. Surely this is the new... And it appeared that, and then in the end he says, well, that's weird. You've shown me all your, all your sons and none of them are the future deliverer of Israel. Don't understand this. And Jesse goes, oh, oh, oh yeah, there's one more. In fact, Jesse doesn't do it. He says, have you got any more? Because normally I hear the Lord right. Have you got any more? Uh, oh, well, yeah, there's the shepherd boy. The shepherd boy. The shepherd boy. And look at the son of David. Look what came out from David. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? So when we, I hope that in this first session, I've whet your appetite for the importance. We haven't even begun to see how Jesus ministered to his 12, how, how, how he spent time. I've said he spent most of his time in those three years with these men. And so it is, it is an important thing for us to week by week study and see, well, what did he do with these men that was so important to him that he spent most of his three years ministering to them. God bless you. Have a great bank holiday weekend. Don't forget the book.